the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. W.H. Weiskarper, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiskarper, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Weiscarver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whyscarver.com. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me, I see bones, I see gizzards and bones, and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones I see hips And fourteen paper clips Three asparagus tips Among the lovely bones I see things in your peritoneum 
everybody this is the tom sumner program my guest this hour is um a professor of law and affiliate professor of history at american university has also been a law and public affairs fellow at princeton and a visiting professor at cornell and he has a new book it's called choose your medicine freedom of therapeutic choice in america he joins me by phone lewis grossman lewis welcome to the show thanks for having me tom um, Lewis, when did you 
start taking an interest uh, as as a lawyer in um, medicine? So that's a, uh, a very uh, interesting question that has a somewhat autobiographical uh, answer. Um, I kind of stumbled into food and drug law practice um, simply by meeting the father of a friend, uh, my colleague Peter Hutt, um, who uh, is one of the you know leading food and drug lawyers in, in the country. And I just fell in love with food and drug regulation as soon as I learned about it. I think that one reason for that is that my mother is a lawyer and my father is a physician. And I think it allowed me to find a place where I could connect professionally and personally with both of them for the rest of my life. And indeed, <laughs> I take it, it has proven to, to do that. Lewis, I take it your dad won the debate over whether you should become a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, my sister is a doctor, so he's not too mad about me becoming a lawyer. Oh, okay. Well, that works out great. Um, although the last name Grossman works either well, either way, as an attorney or as a doctor. Um, it's worked for me. Lewis, let, let me let me ask this: the the book "Choose Your Medicine: Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America." Aren't our choices bound by the health care insurance we have? So that's a, a, a great starting question, Tom. Um, and that occurred to me uh, very early on that I cannot address this very fascinating issue as if we're living in uh, a, a world where uh, medical products and services are, are paid for by patients. And I have an entire chapter um, which is called Freedom, uh, well, let me just try to remember the exact name, uh, the right to be covered, that's what I call it, the right to be covered, therapeutic choice and health insurance. And what is really striking about this issue is that um, you get this strange dynamic where you have conservatives who normally don't support big government normally support free enterprise, oftentimes claiming that there's some kind of tyranny, rationing, death panels going on, when what's really going on is that the government has decided not to reimburse for certain health care. So, for example, I have a uh, discussion of Avastin, which is a cancer drug, and it was already approved for a couple of cancers. Then it was approved for breast cancer. Um, ultimately, FDA looked at the data and decided that the breast cancer approval should be withdrawn. And uh, not just certain breast cancer advocates, but also the conservative press went bananas and said, this is tyranny, this is rationing, this is a death panel. When, in fact, since it was already available for other cancers, it remained available for um, doctors who prescribe for breast cancer, and indeed some did so. The only real impact of FDA's decision 
was that it had the possibility of leading insurance companies to not cover Avastin for breast cancer. And so it's a very, very intriguing dynamic where you have people uh, who normally uh, are all about free enterprise and government non-interference saying it's tyranny for the government not to be paying for a particular use of a particular drug. I, I, when you talk about uh, conservatives and, and how they um, react and, and involve themselves in some of these issues, I was talking with uh, ultra-conservative uh, Alan Keyes. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, sure, sure. So, some years ago, and he was talking about health care insurance, and he said nowhere in a free market society do we have anything else where where an insurance company has that kind of influence over the choices we make. He said, for example, you wouldn't buy car insurance and then have the insurance company, company give you a list of models you could pick from. Yeah, that, that, that is true. That he said that wouldn't true. happen in but, any other transaction but, in America yeah. but health care. But then what conclusion did Mr. Keyes draw from that observation? Therefore, what? Well, therefore, um, insurance companies, it, it shouldn't be mandated that we have to have health insurance. Oh, okay, because the other way he could have gone is to say that uh, insurance must cover everything. And, of course, that is a non-starter from a... Uh, from a free market or, or, or a, a profitability perspective. Well, let me ask. Yeah. Let me ask you this about choice, because a lot of people, I think, believe that they have uh, therapeutic choice because of that um, that that old prescription. Get a second opinion, but don't most second opinions typically just back up the first opinion? So I don't really know uh, the answer to that. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Um, Lewis, but I'm just saying, isn't there a tendency of doctors to not want to split from their colleagues? Um, I have, I mean, if we're going to be a a personal about about it, I, in a family situation quite recently, uh, went to uh, a, a different doctor who was willing to dramatically depart from uh, the course of treatment from uh, that was uh, being pursued by the previous doctor, even though that previous doctor was the mentor of the current doctor. Well, that's promising. Um, yeah, and so uh, that's just an anecdote, um, but uh, I don't know uh, the extent to which it's true, but it's also important to note, and I also talk about free choice of doctor, uh, medical insurance limits not only the drugs you can take, it also limita- limits the doctors you can see and how many times you can see different doctors. And so shopping around for uh, a therapeutic regimen is not really a possibility for many Americans because they can't simply go to a second doctor to get a second opinion in many instances. More about freedom of therapeutic choice in America from attorney and author Louis Grossman. Straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Yo, speaking. Oh dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More about freedom of therapeutic choice in America from attorney and author Louis Grossman, straight ahead. What, um, what made you decide to write this book? So I um, have a Ph.D. in history as well as a law degree. And for a long time uh, at the start of my career, I had a lot of balls in the air um, at the same time. I was writing about 19th century uh, jurisprudence. At the same time, I was writing a food and drug textbook and working in the food and drug area. And I kind of had a inspiration, an epiphany at some point, that my life would become simple and more sensible if I combined those two fields. And so even though I hadn't studied history of medicine as a PhD student, I kind of took it upon myself to do a private course on history of medicine and to read all of the seminal works and to focus my scholarship on the intersection between the history of medicine uh, and health on the one hand and legal history on the other hand. Now, in terms of the specific issue, I have long taught a case in my food and drug class called Abigail Alliance. And this is a, a heartbreaking case where a young woman named Abigail Burroughs, whose photograph appears in the introduction of my book, uh, thanks to her father, who I have now gotten to know, she was suffering from head and neck cancer and was trying to access experimental treatments, uh, not yet approved uh, treatments, and was unable to obtain them and ended up passing away, and then after she died, um, uh, the drugs were, or one of the drugs at least, was actually approved for the head and neck cancer that she had. Um, and this was always a, a fascinating issue to me where at, while I was teaching the, the class and also to my students, the issue being where do you draw the line between the government deciding whether or not you should be able to uh, access a drug or whether that risk-benefit analysis should be done by the patient in consultation with her doctor. And uh, every single year I talk to the students about it. Uh, the, the court ultimately decided that she did not have a due process right to access drugs before they're approved. Um, but a generation of students that I taught, most of whom consider themselves to be quote-unquote liberal, thought that she should have been able to access those drugs. And it was just a fascinating issue, and I decided to delve further into it. And that is pretty much what the genesis of this book was. Well, how did this notion, uh, you know, that... There's the old joke that, uh, you know, a doctor, you call a doctor and you tell him you've got an ailment and he says, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. But how did how did this notion that in, in physical health and mental health um, evolve that that doctors are 
um, simply throwing drugs at the problems? Well, it's certainly, I mean, I think doctors would themselves dispute that characterization of what they do. But I would say that um, the middle of the 20th century, uh, the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, really did produce a unbelievable series of miracle drugs, uh, antibiotics uh, that conquered long-time uh, scourges of, of humankind, like uh, tuberculosis, not completely conquered, but controlled, uh, vaccines that put an end to long-time terrors for people like uh, polio, um, and I think that the notion that, uh, that pharmaceuticals were kind of the silver bullet for health really emerged from that period of time. That said, um, if you go back in American history, there have long been people who have focused on uh, drugs of various kinds as the silver bullet. Um, if you go back to uh, uh, George Washington's time, uh, the Orthodox doctors would dose patients heavily with uh, mercury-based drugs, purgatives, emetics, things like that. Um, and even their competition in the early 19th century, uh, the, the botanical school called the Thompsonians, they had a drug-based regimen that they relied on. It happened to be uh, a, a drug-based regimen rooted in nature, um, but it was, you know, it was definitely a drug-based one. Well, and there are there, people today who swear that marijuana is the panacea for everything. Yes, and I, in fact, I have a whole chapter in my book about the long movement and successful movement to uh, legalize uh, medicinal marijuana. And, you know, this is another interesting phenomenon that has deep roots in American history, which is the cult of the natural, the notion that because a particular medication is, uh, is quote-unquote natural, that it is therefore God-given, safer, and what should be used. And... This is a, a little bit of an ironic position because, you know, aspirin uh, and digitalis and other drugs were derived from natural um, plants uh, in the first place. But um, why is it that cannabis in particular um, led to this national movement uh, in favor of legalization and this idea that it could be used to treat so many things. Um, one of those reasons, and you can see it in the rhetoric, is that it is, quote-unquote, God-given. It's a plant. And I think that's part of what was going on with cannabis as the legalization movement spread. And how did oversight by the FDA um, come to... Uh be play such a significant role in what people can and can't use to make themselves feel better? Well, that's a great question and a long and fascinating history. But what we now know as the FDA 
has existed under different names since the middle of the 19th century. But it didn't acquire authority over um, drugs uh, until 1906 in a major famous statute called the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, but even then, it didn't have pre-market approval authority over drugs. Rather, it had the authority to go after drug manufacturers who either were selling adulterated drugs with you know, contaminants or poisons in them, um, or uh, making labeling uh, claims that were um, fraudulent uh, and not true. The real uh, uh, moment uh, of FDA's uh, acquisition of power was the passage of the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And that is when FDA, for the first time, gained licensing authority, pre-market approval authority, over uh, medicines in America. But even that wasn't uh, as powerful uh, a grant of power as FDA has now, because originally, at least as a formal matter, FDA was reviewing drugs for safety, but not for effectiveness. That moment came in 1962, uh, in the wake of the famous thalidomide crisis, where uh, there was a drug that was legal in many countries, but was kept off the market in the United States that led to tragic uh, birth defects in, in uh, children of mothers who were taking the drug. Uh, may, maybe people have seen pictures of thalidomide babies uh, with stunted limbs and so forth. And this tragedy led the FDA, sorry, led Congress to give the FDA the power to approve drugs prior to marketing based on their safety and effectiveness. And so that is the real moment that FDA gained the power it now has, approximately 50 years ago. I will say, however, and this is interesting, um, even before the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, uh, another part of the government at the time gained power um, to do pre-market review of biologics, which included vaccines. And so the government was actually reviewing the potency and safety of vaccines as early as 1902, pursuant to something called the Biologics Control Act. And in the 1970s, that authority was shifted to FDA. So FDA now plays that role also. Between the reliance we have on medical professionals, um, doctors and clinicians, um, and, and the power of, of the FDA, um, do we really have any choice about our therapies, or, or do we just accept what we're told are the prescribed treatments for certain kinds of ailments? So, um, if you're talking about the armamentarium of orthodox treatments, we always preserve the right to take a drug or not take a drug. And so, um, I know people who, whose doctors have said, you should take this drug, and they say, no, I don't want to take the drug. When it comes to the issue of whether or not um, 
patients can choose from amongst a variety of drugs for the same condition, you've seen an extraordinary social development since the late 1980s where patients um, have educated themselves, have taken control of their own health care to an extent that they never did before, and have also, at the government level, organized in order to affect FDA policy. Um, I traced this in, in another article I wrote called FDA and the Rise of the Empowered Consumer. Um, as late as the late 50s, early 60s, something like 85% of doctors uh, reported that they wouldn't tell a patient if that patient had uh, terminal cancer. I mean, think about that. That's an extraordinary thing. We now live in a world of informed consent. Uh, but before that, we lived in a world of absolutely uninformed uh, um, uh, relationships with our physicians. Uh, when the AIDS crisis came around uh, in the 1980s, uh, it was the first time when a group of activist patients um, educated themselves about the disease um, to the point where they, in many ways, knew as much about the disease as the doctors they were visiting. And you've seen uh, echoes of this ever since. And I think it's partly a function of the information environment. In the old days, where would one go to find out about disease and treatment of disease other than the doctors, you know, pull the physician desk reference off, uh, off the, the shelf of the library and not understand it. But with an increase in literacy, plus, I mean, one big moment, by the way, was the, um, even before the internet, the publication of something called the pill book. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Which became a, yeah, it became a massive bestseller, uh, and it's under-recognized what an earth shift that was, that all of a sudden consumers were understanding about the drugs that they were taking and then going to their physicians and demanding specific drugs. And then, of course, you get the Internet where everybody can become their own medical researcher and research the conditions they have. Physicians don't always like this. Um, it means that they have to have conversations with patients instead of simply ministering to them and telling them what to do. Uh, but it really is a very different atmosphere today than it used to be uh, in America. Now, and and I would it, also add to that, Lewis, that I think there are a lot of doctors who um, have embraced a more informed consumer and encourage that. Um, you know, I think doctors' attitudes about this are changing dramatically. Uh, I think so, yes. Uh, uh, I have, as I mentioned before, I have uh, relatives who are doctors, um, and uh, I haven't asked them recently how they, how they feel about it. Um, but um, I'm sure that they do respect the... Uh, you know, the self-education of their patients. But it's also worth saying that we live in a system now where doctors are no longer given the freedom that they once had to sit with patients, to consult with patients, to talk with patients. And I think there is frustration among some doctors in our society that 
patients come in, uh, they make their own demands, their own observations, and take up uh, the doctor's time. And I'm not, my, I'm not saying that my relatives have this attitude, but I think to some extent there is, uh, you know, some frustration about that. This is um, evident in physicians' reaction to direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. You are talking about choice. This is another sort of American uh, exceptionalism. Uh, this is another aspect of American exceptionalism. There are only two countries in the world where you're allowed to do direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs, uh, the United States and New Zealand. And uh, why do they run these ads, the companies? Because they know that patients have some control over what medication they will be uh, receiving even though they are prescription medications. And this started with, uh, um, uh, in, I think, in the early 1990s. Uh, and, you know, one of the big areas of uh, early advertisement was, uh, was psychiatric drugs, antidepressants. And you had people educating themselves on the different SSRIs and SNRIs and going to their doctors and saying, let's try this one. Let's switch to this one. Um, and the same thing happened in other areas, including allergy medications and other things. And so that's another real signal moment in America is the introduction of direct-to-consumer advertising. What role does cost play in restricting choice? Uh, so cost, and this goes back to our earlier discussion about insurance. If the drug is covered um, then by, by your insurance plan, then there's no restriction. Uh, but that is not always the case, and a lot of times you have to fight with the bureaucracy in order not just to get a drug that is not approved for the condition uh, that you have, but even simply to get your preferred drug amongst the menu of approved drugs because many insurance plans in efforts at cost control actually have um, sort of priority systems where you have to try one drug before you can possibly have access to another drug. And I don't mean access to another drug. I mean get coverage uh, for another drug. And so we don't live in a world of uh, of you know, universal, uh, unconditioned insurance where you really just to get, get to go out there and try everything as though you were trying, you know, nut samples at a uh, Whole Foods or something like that. Uh, cost does matter. More about freedom of therapeutic choice in America from attorney and author Louis Grossman, straight up. <laughs> Stay away 
from church I avoid old folks And should I sneeze I do it in my elbow Or up my sleeve Six feet apart can go back to school I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors and I'm sick of what I see of quarantine will be the death of me the death of me I risk a trip to the grocery store to buy TP and a few things more but when I get there all I can find honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku Netflix, PBS and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors cause I'm sick of what I see So this quarantine's gonna be the death of me The death of me You know, they say this is war But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Porkchop Hill And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid To parachute into Wuhan And find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized as <laughs> soon as I regained consciousness.
And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. 
More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about freedom of therapeutic choice in America from attorney and author Louis Grossman, straight ahead. And and I know you talk in your book about um, different um, activists, how activists and lawyers have resisted um, legal constraints on therapeutic choice um, from MD, uh, FDA limitations on unapproved drugs and alternative rem- remedies. And I, I wanted to talk about that, alternative remedies, because we hear more and more about that, especially in the world of self-help books. <laughs> and, and all these, you know, if, if you do this regiment uh, diet-wise and, and with these supplements, you can, you know, take care of what ails you. Um, and and there are some restrictions on those. Should there be, and, and I wonder sometimes how well the FDA mission is working when I hear the disclaimers on some of those drug ads you were talking about. So thank you for raising uh, this issue because uh, I was going to uh, include this in my answer to your question about choice and, and forgot to do so. Uh, when you talk about consumer choice, there is the issue of patient choice amongst the uh, the world of of orthodox drugs, FDA-approved drugs, but then Americans are also very, very uh, interested and uh, active participants in the world of alternative medicine. And uh, this is another, by the way, development really of the past few decades. Uh, during the middle decades of the 20th century, although we don't have great data, um, alternative medicine was not particularly popular. But starting in the 1970s and ever since, Americans have turned with increasing frequency to alternative medicine. I will say, however, that it is often now called alternative and complementary medicine rather than alternative medicine because it is often used as a complement or supplement to the orthodox treatments people are taking as opposed to an alternative to orthodox uh, treatments. And obviously, FDA is less concerned about that situation than they would be if people were taking uh, supplements or, you know, uh, using energy devices uh, for cancer and not going to see an oncologist. Um, FDA has great formal power over alternative medicine. Uh, with the uh, exception of supplements, which I will uh, uh, mention in a moment. Uh, Yet it doesn't really exercise that power. Uh, There is a paradox, which is why does FDA have the power to block any drug that's not safe and effective from the market and measure effectiveness by uh, 
random controlled studies, randomized controlled studies, and yet it is so easy in this country to buy alternative drugs, alternative medicines, alternative cures that have never been subjected to such successful studies. And the answer is that FDA basically holds its hand and lets many of these products remain on the market without interfering with them. Um, and I think that's just a, a calculation it makes that our society wants these, and unless uh, they contain certain dangerous ingredients or make certain uh, aggressive claims, uh, that they're just not going to devote the agency's resources to going after these things. Now, when it comes to supplements, a lot of people say that they are unregulated. Um, that's not true. FDA does have regulatory authority over dietary supplements. It just doesn't have as much authority over them as some people would like for them to have. And this was due to a statute that was passed in the early 1990s following a great deal of both corporate and public activism, um, which led to the world we all experience now of dietary supplements making these not quite disease claims uh, on the labels uh, of their products, kind of winking at the public saying, you know what this is for, um, and that is completely legal. Lewis, we're running short on time, and, and I want to make sure and, uh, and cover a couple of qu very quick points. Um, my guest is Lewis Grossman. He's the author of Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. And um, I, I guess uh, what I want to ask to sort of wrap this up is when you were writing this book, you know, who, did, who do you imagine as who you hope will will read this book and what are you hoping they'll get out of it? So I specifically wrote this book, although it's being published by, uh, you know, esteemed university press, Oxford University Press. Um, I wrote this specifically uh, in a way that would be both accessible and engaging to uh, a general readership. Um, and so part of the audience for this book that I, I hope will uh, gobble it up, are just uh, interested citizens who are looking now in the middle of the pandemic at this, to many, bizarre medical libertarianism that is occurring in a large swath of the population, and to allow them to put it in historical context and to realize that uh, this is not new. In many ways, this is typical of America. And also to sort of work through in their own minds the issues of where the line should be drawn between government interference and uh, um, consumer choice. I also want to reach uh, audiences of policymakers um, who oftentimes miss the historical context of things. And, um, I, and as well as uh, judges and jurists, um, who oftentimes uh, have a kind of very shallow view of 
the history that they're relating in their opinions uh, upon which they are uh, establishing the existence or non-existence of certain rights. Um, and then also I think it will be of incredible interest just to, uh, to the medical profession as well as the legal profession uh, as a whole. Um, I hope it's an enjoyable book, um, and I, I really hope that people pick it up and read it uh, just because it's really interesting and it contains a whole bunch of really interesting stories and really interesting individuals. Uh, and so there was also a part of me that just wanted to write a good book. <laughs> Which is always the goal of uh, any writer, Lewis. Um, well, Lewis, thanks for spending this time with me and, and sharing some of the thoughts. I feel like we just scratched the surface, but I always ask guests to share with listeners where maybe they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Thank you for that, Tom. The best place to find out about me is to go to the American University Washington College of Law website uh, and choose me from amongst a list of faculty, and there's a lot of information there. I also have a Amazon authors page, which contains uh, a lot of information about me. Um, and I love engaging with people both inside and outside the academy. Um, and so I hope that the release of this book leads to more relationships and more discussions with the world at large. Well, Lewis, thanks again for uh, sharing your time with me and the uh, listeners, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. It was a real privilege to be here. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Take care. Uh, once again, that was uh, Louis Grossman. He is a professor of law and affiliate professor of history at American University. And uh, he's also been a uh, fellow at Princeton and a visiting professor at Cornell. The name of the book is Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> Actually, not much more of the Tom Sumner program as we're uh, coming to a close, but I uh, hope you enjoyed listening, and uh, thanks to all of the guests, Louis Grossman, this uh, last hour, and uh, in the second hour, talking with um, William Wildblood from the UK about his book, Earth is a School, and then... Uh, Early this morning, the first hour of our three-hour tour, we talked to Ashley Elliott about her true crime memoir, The Demon in Disguise, Murder, Kidnapping, and the Banty Rooster. And we squeezed in a little chat with Yvonne Lewis from Genesee Health Plan about their 8th annual drive through flu vaccine tomorrow at their offices from 3 to 6. I'll be back tomorrow. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. 
This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.